Welcome to the Future of Processes podcast. I'm Ben Merton, CEO of Unifies, and each week I'll be talking to people in manufacturing about what it really takes to bring products to life. So this is about building an organizational culture, leadership, product design, supply chain, change management, how to attract the best talent, and in particular, how we can create better, more human processes for the factories of tomorrow. I am joined today by Gerald Heitman, who is president of SDG Global, which helps OEMs and tiered suppliers bring their supply base closer to their operations. Gerald previously held director-level positions in automotive, aerospace, and heavy equipment industries, in addition to being general manager of quality operations at Panasonic Energies North America, which is one of the largest manufacturers of lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles in the world and operates inside Tesla's Gigafactory in Sparks, Nevada. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to him today. So welcome to the show, Gerald. Well, thank you, Ben, for having me on the show. I appreciate having the opportunity to be a part and talk about the state of processes and the future of processes and quality in general. Great. Please, let's start by giving me a bit of background on what motivated you to get into this world of quality and continuous improvement. Well, I've been in the uh, world of quality and continuous improvement for a number of years at varying levels within organizations from automotive, aerospace, off-highway hydraulics, major big machine type companies. And I've had various different levels all the way up to director levels in quality, continuous improvement. But the real push for me was when I learned about people like Edward Deming, Walter Schuhart, Kaoru Ishikawa, Dr. Wheeler. The people that really set the basis for what the true understanding and mechanisms by which we actually improve quality and improve our customers' experience, I shouldn't say what's brought me to it, but what's kept me in it. So no matter what position I've had, those tools have always served me well. They're timeless and they're true. Great. Okay, so maybe we can go straight into the next question on the on the basis of that, though. You know, obviously, we've had a number of people on the podcast up till now that talk a lot about Six Sigma and Lean. So I want to hear from you. How does Six Sigma differ from the world of Deming? Well, I won't say they're diametrically opposed, but there are certain elements of them that are. And what I've experienced in, you know, in my positions throughout and companies that propose and are proponents of the Six Sigma process is it leaves a good portion of Deming's 14 points of management behind and doesn't truly set up to utilize the entire wealth of information that exists within a company at every level of the company. It's a more of a divide issue. It's cost-based. It's not truly a continuous improvement aspect. I've seen where they've been able to use some of Deming's stuff, but never as credit given to people like Edward Deming and Ishikawa for keeping it simple. And simple is the key word. And that's where I think they go away from each other. They divert from each other in that the Six Sigma process picks a few people and they become the experts. And it takes months and months for those people to be brought up to speed, to be trained, to earn their belts for whatever they use their belts for. I use mine to hold my pants up. But it doesn't take into consideration the people at every level. Sure, they try to involve them, but my experiences have been starting with the quality circle areas. And that's what brings people to the table and to train them in very simple ways of solving problems. You know, the Ishikawa type methods. And even though they use some of those tools in their toolbox, 
there's more to it than just going out and throwing a control chart on something. In most cases, they don't. It's go out, get an idea, try something. So a very interesting way of doing single factorial studies, what you learn next to nothing when you have complicated processes that interact with one another throughout the system. It's amazing. So what is the thing that has rankled you most about this sort of emergence of Six Sigma in there, into the world of, and sort of overtaking? Because it does seem that the share of voice, when you talk to continuous improvement quality specialists around the world, that Six Sigma seems to have won the battle of the noise and the pomp and circumstance, as it were, of it. At the very least. So what is it that you feel is those two or three things in the 14 points there that are missing most out of Six Sigma from Demi, if that was it? Several of the things. One is the eighth point of removing fear from the system. Six Sigma does nothing to remove fear from the system. And then as a matter of fact, it injects fear because it bases everything on dollars. It doesn't face everything on variation that exists in the process and how to attack it. But they set up boundaries and they set up competitions. And they use financial reward to set up competitions of the people that have been chosen to be in Six Sigma. So automatically, you're bringing a problem within the organization in that, oh, that's those Six Sigma people. They get to do whatever they want. They get to treat the data however they want, and then they get a bonus for it. And so that separates them from the rest of the organization. And they may use some of the tools, but they don't understand the complete philosophy of management and how to manage an organization in that understanding and what Demi referred to as the system of profound knowledge, where it is your responsibility to understand the interactions of your system. So everybody focuses on manufacturing and manufacturing processes. But what happens when you don't have material to run that process? What process comes into play with that? Purchasing. What process and or your supplier development group, that whole group, they all come into there. What about finance? What about when the finance has an issue and has to pay its bills and your supplier shuts you off? They're all a part of that system. What are you going to do to rectify it? Now, some say, yeah, okay, write the check, but you know, they're you know, engineering. What about when the machine breaks? Is engineering involved with that? This is one of the mistakes that I think a lot of people, when they hear SPC and they think of statistics, manufacturing statistics, they think of, oh, I make a part I measure a part. Oh, it's out of tolerance. Sorry, that's too late. Some people get stuck. I mean, that's an indicator, and it might be a first step you take to understand what might be going on in the processes. But to make, let's say, a machine part, you have speeds, feeds, electrical motors, maybe pumps, you know, moving fluid, the types of fluids that are in a pump. That's all part of the system, the subsystems that support them. Not just manufacturing and not just the processes, but finance and bringing in purchasing and engineering, quality and manufacturing together and understand the interactions and understand the variations that cause problems in those particular areas in service to your customer. That also includes your supply base. And when your supply base doesn't understand that and they don't understand the philosophies of dumbing, and it takes time to get all of this through to people until they understand and see how it works. But until you get everybody involved in understanding your system of profound knowledge and how to go about using simple tools and the framework of the organization at every level to come to bear on attacking that variation and understanding it, you have to learn things from this. And that's why those Deming developed not only just 14 points for management, but people like Dr. Wheeler 
and even Dr. Deming implemented SPC methodologies. And I was inundated with a lot of different companies that felt it necessary to go on a search for millions of dollars of software programs to help them do SPC. It takes a five cent piece of paper and a paper chart on it and go out and collect some data. Then you begin to start to understand your own profound knowledge and how you bring your team to bear to do that. And when you take Dr. Ishikawa's book that he wrote, which was the guide to quality control, goes through every one of the seven problem solving tools that are needed and can be used to go through the PDSA cycle that Dr. Deming gave to us as a model for continuous improvement. And the one thing about continuous improvement that we were taught was it never ends. So when you're done fixing all your problems in manufacturing, which will be very difficult to actually accomplish, you then bring the PDSA model to bear on opportunities and using the same tools. You go out and you work with your customer and you be a part and embed yourself with your customer and you understand what your customer is doing. So as we talk about software packages, software programs, and AI, there's places for everything. And I've thought about this for about a week now because I was inundated with AI and I've talked to some folks about AI previously. I absolutely love it. And they're great champions of it. And I think about it and I go back to a book I previously read, which was called The Machine That Changed the World. And that was when I was first introduced to Deming. The Machine That Changed the World talked about the conversion from the horse and buggy, one person, one part, or one assembly. And every assembly is different. AI is no different as I look at it. It's not a leap forward. AI does all types of things that you don't want it to do. AI is being looked at as a means to be able to adjust based on data that's coming off a system. Well, if the AI hasn't been taught to understand the data, what kind of changes are they going to make? In plastic injection molding and in die casting operations, which I'm familiar with, we had people that would change the settings on the machines based on what they saw coming off in quality. But we call that knob turning. It didn't fix or identify any of the variation that was causing those non-conformances or those changes in the way the products appear. So AI becomes a very high-tech knob turner. And so that's why I say it reverts back to the days of one person builds one buggy. And if you have 20 people, you now have 20 sources of variation times the number of components that you put into that. So you're looking at exponential and almost insurmountable opportunity to fix problems and to continuously improve. But that's what Deming, Ishikawa, and the like teach us. The continuous improvement aspect is a journey that you follow a set of those simple tools with all the people in the organization, especially the people that have the knowledge to be a part of it. What I find amazing though, is that there's a magazine that I was looking up in preparation for this called the Agility Effect magazine that says, AI is the future of continuous improvement. And pretty much everywhere that you look now, you can't really read about manufacturing online in any of these journals or magazines that talk about the future of manufacturing and processes without hearing the word AI or the acronym AI. So you're telling me that AI is not the future of continuous improvement. And why is it that technologists have got this so wrong? Like, what do you think it is that they've missed? Is it that they've just never stood on a shop floor once 
and understood what variation causes there are. That could be some of it, but I think it actually speaks to the state of their education. And I don't mean their education in higher learning institutions, which I won't call into question, but do have questions about. And when you teach somebody in business and in operations management, and you give them degrees in that, and you haven't touched very much on quality and how as operations leaders, they're going to be called upon to understand and improve their quality. And they haven't been given the right tools to go do it. AI sounds real nice because the only investment is money. And if you've got money to burn, knock yourself out. But I haven't found too many organizations that do or have, especially when they're already bleeding, unacceptable levels of non-conformances as it is. AI, to me, is a future tool, but it doesn't replace understanding the methodologies of quality and how you apply them. Because how can you apply AI to something that you don't understand? And you're going to have to take the time to understand it. Again, their system of profound knowledge. And I think AI has its place, but it has its place as a signal, not as a controller. The actual controlling of the processes should be in the human's hands. What do you think it means for the world if people are moving away from Deming and towards Six Sigma? What is that going to result in? How would it manifest ultimately? Yeah, they're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Globally. (laughs) So globally, it's going to be the global sector that understands this and picks it up and starts running with it. Japan, it has always been a champion of Deming. They instituted the Deming Award as an honor to him for excellence in manufacturing and the use of Deming's tools and the demonstration of their use of their tools. And if you don't start understanding and have the right knowledge to design, develop, and understand your risk, then you're going to be fighting these battles the whole time. You're going to constantly be changing your management teams because performance will ebb and sway. And people that are in the lower part of the trough when they're at the top They're going to be held accountable, and they may be very, very dynamic people with circumstances outside of their level of control. And without people understanding that at every level of the organization, in particular, the executive suite, because, oh, by the way, one of Deming's other issues was that 85% of all problems are caused by management, either by the decisions they make or that they refuse to make. And that is so true, because the processes that the working people on the floor work on every day. They didn't devise those. They didn't have input in them. They were given to them. And those people had to go out and make the best of what they were given. And when something didn't go right or went wrong, who got the blame? Person running the process, not the person that designed and gave it to them, not the managers that accepted it and wrote off on the new processes or the new procedures or what have you, or the new change to something. It was always very easy to blame the people at the very frontline level for failures of management. And that's what Debbie was telling everyone. And whatever global organization begins to understand that and also understands this doesn't happen overnight. In every place that I've talked to, they're in such dire straits that it has to happen overnight. Well, there's strategies to kind of do that, but you've got to be able to make the investment in those strategies and the systems to get that and to make that happen. And there are very few of those around, one that I know of that handles most of it. And it's one of those things that whichever global sector figures this out or whichever corp company within there figured out, they'll understand that 
through quality comes improved performance and improved performance to your customer equals improved profits. Six Sigma is millions of dollars spent in organizations, slow moving. Everybody has to be trained to a certain level and oh, only certain people can do it. It doesn't fit the model of continuous improvement. It fits the model of continuous profitability for somebody, not necessarily organizations. That's <laughs> brilliant. So now we've established that you definitely have a very strong thesis, which is great. <laughs> so now supposing somebody's listening to this and they're just coming out of college and they've done a great job, Six Sigma, and the proponents of this is Jack Welch and his sort of glorification of the concept, but it's been taken a lot further than that in the last 30 years or so. So now we've got these people in college, they're thinking about what to do. They've heard a lot about this. What is the path? What is the advice you would give to them? These aspiring continuous improvement enthusiasts, these people who are looking to do things the right way, what should they do? Start an ice cream business, sell ice cream cones. No, I'm sorry. I'm a little flip when I say that. I mean, what I can say relative to that is, have you seen GE lately? Right. (laughs) Are they still embracing Six Sigma to the level that they work? I don't think so. And if you actually did a study on all the major corporations that have followed the Six Sigma model, take a look at what their performance is from a profitability-wise and a standpoint and how well those businesses have done since their implementation of Six Sigma. It's pretty sketchy. So there's millions of dollars going out to fund the community that supports this and provides this to these organizations. And the return on investment can always be what's been preached as being there because no one's ever really tested a question, their data relative to that. As I told one of my granddaughters, when she was going through some classes in school that I didn't necessarily agree with, I said, don't believe what you're told. Do your research to either verify it or refute it. Everyone is saying, we're going to change the world. We're going to go work for these tech companies. Well, those are some of the companies that are running away from quality and quality systems that are time-tested and true that can help them do all the AI and all the neat tech things for the future, but not until you understand how it all comes together in the system. Right. Where do you see the role of software in continuous improvement of quality, if at all? Does it even factor into your thing, or is it something that you just would do as much as you can to avoid even having to entertain the concept of? No, actually, I think there's a very useful part of it, one that I am a proponent of very much, and that is in the finance area, making sure that my paycheck is correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't have to calculate it, because... I have profound knowledge in their system of doing so. (laughs) If the software is done correctly, it is useful tool to help you understand and utilize your PDSA model. So that again is a linking system that doesn't stand alone, but complements all the other systems within the organization. And it doesn't matter if it's manufacturing, you know, it could be a business process you know, to lose, use lean terms, it could be a business process, not a manufacturing process by which you bring all this to bear. Because it's all about understanding the risk and assessing it and mitigating it. And you mitigate it by doing and using the PDSA model. That actually, Shoe Art started, but 
Deming called it PDCA at first and changed it to PDSA because he thought study was better than check. And that was the marvelous thing about it. So is there room for software? Yes. If it isn't superficial, yes. If it has merit and it supports the good quality systems and supporting an excellent level of quality to your customer, then I'm all for it. And I think there's a place for it. That's where it has to be. It has to be a part of that. Right. Interesting. So, you know, whether it's software or not, like, what do you think the future of process is? We are the future of process podcast. Of course, I have to ask you the question, you know, what do you see this as being 10 years from now? Obviously, you've got the view that you've mentioned earlier about how you see the lack of adoption of better business and quality management methods like Deming proposed as being a problem. But do you see the future looking positive in any way at all? Or is it all negative? What will it be 10 years from now? Yeah, I do. And 10 years from now, for those that understand it, are now finding the niches where AI and software come in to help run the business and identify variation. But I see it intermingled with the human touch. You can't lose that. Your organization is going to have to have, I mean, you can work for a lights out organization. And, and I've seen them that have worked pretty well, but very small operations. Getting large scale lights out is really not all that easy to do or even probable to do. But I see the integration of technology, appropriately so, with those organizations that do understand what Deming was teaching and do understand that it's the people in your organization that make up the organization. They're the ones that write the code for the AI. <laughs> They're the ones that, that set all that stuff up as well as the people on the floor. Where's the input coming from? Even if you find the old grumps out there, they have all the knowledge, but they don't want to share it. And when they start sharing it and be a part of it and get acknowledged for it, they become your champions. And those are the people of worth that feed the information to your software designers, your AI people, and that helps to make the organization better. I'm not saying AI will take over the manufacturing world. It has its place just like we all have our place in every part of the process. It's amazing. So we're coming towards the end of the podcast and I'm going to do what we call the rapid fire round, which is I'm going to ask you three questions that you have to answer in less than 60 seconds. So question number one, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about quality and continuous improvement during your career? The most surprising thing was that it was something that could actually be measured. I thought it was just someone that went out you know, made a decision about, well, I don't like the way it looks or it doesn't fit here, that there actually were mechanisms that you could use to be a part of this. And then when I was introduced to SBC first, Deming second, and uh, Deming opened my eyes to the world, that quality was much more than that. It's, there's a book years ago called Quality is in the Eye of the Beholder. Well, actually it isn't. Quality is in the output of the process. And what does the eye of the beholder see in the process? So how do you get teams to collaborate around complex processes? Well, first of all, anything that's complex needs to be broken down. And when you build a team of people that actually interact and work with that particular process, those are the people you want involved and the people that design it and maybe some of the people that support it and an outside eye. We always try to keep a team at five to seven people. Otherwise, it becomes very ineffective and inefficient. Too many people, too many ideas, too many thoughts, and sit down and just start Uses a cause effect that use the seven tools, brainstorming, cause and effects, check sheets, Pareto analysis, those types of things that Ishikawa put in his book, The Guide to Quality Control. 
but utilizing those tools to bring to bear on any technical issue, whether it's complex or not, it's just going to take a little longer, but it's very complex because once you get the one piece of that puzzle and you pick one of those things off your cause and effect diagram, that's you proven is or is not part of the contributor to the root cause, then you go after the next one and the next one and the next one. And you may only see incremental improvement in your changes. So it means there's a multifactorial aspect to what is causing the problem. Therefore, Taguchi comes to bear. So utilizing those types of things. Taguchi, you never want to try to use unless you're in the development stage. It's advanced sort of process and it's best to that's utilized more to help engineer quality into a product before you have to go to manufacturing with it. That's how we'd bring it to bear. Just get the people that have the knowledge and utilize the seven basic problem-solving tools to move into doing further investigation and working you through the process. And now my final question is, what do you think makes a great continuous improvement in quality leader? I think people that understands the value of the process and the people within the process. And to be a good continuous improvement leader, you really do need to have a good, solid, and sound basis in Deming, Ishikawa, and Wheeler. Those three things. And they're not that difficult. They're not that hard to do. Or they're not that hard to understand. But I think if you have that, then you have people that can actually focus you moving and using Deming's 14 points without having to put them in your face. That to me is the type of person that should be leading a continuous improvement activity. That's every level of that because many organizations have people throughout the hierarchy that are just geared towards, towards continuous improvement. And they're not exempt from understanding those things. This has been great, Gerald. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Future of Processes podcast. It's been fascinating to talk to Gerald Heitman about the inadequacies of Lean Six Sigma in building a system of profound knowledge and his perspective on the role of AI in the future of processes. For more discussions and other perspectives on the future of processes, please visit futureofprocesses.com. Alternatively, if you'd like to talk to me directly, feel free to email me at ben at futureofprocesses.com. Finally, please also share this with anyone in your organization that you think might benefit from it. See you next week.